So today we turn our attention again to the prophecy of Zechariah, written 500 years before the coming of Jesus. And we're going to focus on verses 7 through 9. You should find that on page 1101, 1101. That's the page number of that. And then from there, we'll look at Matthew 26, 31 to 35. So 1101. Hear God's word. Verse 7. Awake, O sword. So this is all, it's all connected, you could say, to the Good Friday theme, right? Passion of Christ. Awake, O sword. Who's the Lord talking to? To the sword. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. What a beautiful ending there. And then if you go to Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says, God is talking about me. God is, God is talking about Jesus here. Matthew 26, 31 to 35. Then Jesus said to them, this is after the, uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this very night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. And they were boasting in themselves, thinking they could really follow Christ in their own strength, but... They all end up fleeing and scattering because the Lord shows them that, no, they need a Savior. They need Him to depend upon. So, but our focus is Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Okay. You know, sometimes when you see the big picture, you see the big picture, you see how the little parts fit. It's always helpful. For example, when you have a jigsaw puzzle. If you don't have the jigsaw puzzle box, the whole picture, it's sometimes very hard to put the, the pieces together. But when you see the whole picture, you say, oh, that's where that piece goes. That's where that piece goes. The big picture helps. And I think sometimes... We think, well, Zechariah has a lot of hard parts in it. But we have to be really 
clear here that the big scripture, I'm sorry, the big picture in the whole Bible, including Zechariah, centers on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus himself says that in Luke 24. It centers on the the one who died and rose again from our sin, for, for our sins, right? It centers on the one in whom we die to sin and rise to new life. That's really the center of the Bible, Jesus Christ. And that's really the center of the gospel message which goes out into the world. And you see the power of it as Christ is resurrecting people all over the world. Zechariah and his prophecy also speaks of this very thing. Look, look at 12 verse 10. Zechariah 12 verse 10. He speaks of the people mourning over their sins. They're crying over their sins because of the Lord whom they have pierced. Who's the Lord here? Well, ultimately refers to Christ. They killed him. The very shepherd God gave to him, they killed in their mourning. And then he goes on to say in 13 verse 1, Oh, the fountain is open. What fountain? The fountain from the side of Christ's pierced body is open for, for the cleansing from sin and uncleanness. 13 verse 1. And now, see, it all comes back to Jesus. So when you think of all these hard parts, just think the big picture. Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And here the picture is the striking of the shepherd. Striking, don't think of a slap, but think of killing. He struck with a sword. A sword is there to kill. Okay, the striking of the shepherd. So in verses 7 through 9, it centers, if you notice, on the shepherd. And who's the shepherd? The shepherd is the one who cares for the sheep. The shepherd is a person. Okay, who are the sheep? The sheep are the followers, are his people. So really focus on the shepherd and the sheep. And we can say a little bit more. It focuses on the fact that judgment, God's punishment, will fall on the shepherd. And God's salvation will come to the sheep. Those are the two points there. You might have a lot of questions about one-third, two-thirds. Let's put that to the side for the time being. And you see, it's about God's judgment on the shepherd, on the faithful shepherd, and his salvation for the sheep. And what is God doing here? God, through Zechariah, was already telling the people in those days that he will strike the shepherd to save the sheep. That's the shepherd they need to get them out of the messiness of their lives. All their lives were a mess. And they need a shepherd to save his sheep. So we're going to see those two points this morning. We're going to see God's judgment, his judgment on his shepherd. And second, his salvation of the sheep. You see his judgment on the shepherd, you see that in the first part of verse 7. And the salvation for the 7B following. As a matter of fact, you can just kind of put two words to that. Judgment on the shepherd? Sword. Talks about the sword. 7B through 9 kind of opens up his hand. His hand on the sheep. So sword, 
judgment, hand protection. So that's where we're going. And in the time of Zechariah, of course, Jesus was not yet born, but God is keeping his promise. And what did God do? Well, in order to keep his promise, he brought a remnant. A remnant means he brought a small group of people from, uh, from the exiles, the people of Israel who were sent out to foreign countries because of their sin and rebellion. God made sure that some of them would come back to the land, to Jerusalem. See, God has scattered his people into foreign lands because of their sin and rebellion. They, they rejected the shepherds. And even the shepherds themselves, they failed to lead the people according to God's word, according to the way of his covenant. And if you look at the last verse, eleven seventeen, God says, woe, woe to the shepherds. The shepherd who, the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. They were just sort of abandoning them and said, we don't care about the sheep. <coughs> and so call it, God called Zechariah to bring his word to the people. Remember what Zechariah means? God remembers. The Lord remembers. And the Lord says, I'm remembering my promise. And he calls them to turn away from their sins, to trust in him, to trust in his solid and sure promises. And the Lord says, I'm going to rebuild my church. He says, and I'm going to redeem you. And you will reflect my glorious, precious metals. You can see metals in there a little later, silver and gold. That's God's purpose. That's God's aim. He's going to take rubble, the people who had turned away from the Lord, and he's going to make something beautiful out of them. But what do they need? They need a faithful shepherd. They need a faithful shepherd king to save them for this very purpose. And so who do we meet? Who do we meet in verse 7? We meet a good shepherd. We meet the faithful shepherd. And what does he say? It may surprise us. Arise or awake, O sword. In other words, it's time to wake up, sword. It's time to become active. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. What does he do here? He's summoning, he's commanding the sword to strike the shepherd. What is that a picture of? Rejection. You talk about one who faced rejection. There's no one who faced more rejection than this shepherd. Who is this shepherd? Well, God says, it's my shepherd. See that? My shepherd. He's the man. That's what it says in verse 7. He's the man. And who is this man? The man who is his companion. And that word companion is only used... In one other book of the Bible, and that's in the, in the book of Leviticus of all places, and literally means one who is so close to you, one who is so near to you. That's what that word companion means. And so the shepherd whom the Lord calls my companion, where does he live? He lives side by side with him. He has the same status as the Lord. He's equal in glory and he's equal in majesty to the Lord. 
What's that point to? One who himself is God, right? The shepherd. My companion points to that. Okay, but, the, but he also calls a shepherd man, making it possible for him to die. It has to be man. He's both God and man. He's the Lord. If you look at 12 verse 10, he's the very Lord whom they pierced. This is the one that God summons to strike with the sword. Awake, O swords, against my shepherd. Strike the shepherd. Why, though? Why does the Lord strike his own shepherd, his own son? It's kind of like saying, you know what? I'm going to strike my own son. But this is even more precious to the Lord. He judges the shepherd. Why? Because of us. To atone for the sins of whom? His sheep. To atone for the sins of his chosen people. You know what he's doing? He's going to strike his people, his sheep, in whom? In the shepherd. He's going to spare the sheep because they can never pay. But he's going to strike the sheep in the shepherd himself. He's going to take the full weight. He's going to take, he, he, he bears the just, you could say it's the just punishment. It looks like violence from a world's perspective, but from God's perspective is his justice, his just punishment of their sin upon himself. You know what really, really shows? It really shows how serious sin really is. Our sin is that serious. When you hear people say, you know, I think I'll get to heaven because I've been pretty good in my life. They don't understand. It took the striking of a shepherd to deal a fatal blow, a mortal blow to sin. God's justice demands the death of his companion, his co-equal son. And God, God is so faithful he will not break his covenant. He will not break his covenant relationship with his people. Instead, in order to maintain his covenant relationship, in order to maintain his relationship with his people, he appoints the death of his son in order for him to remain faithful to his people. God will not lie. God does not lie. He remains eternally faithful and trustworthy. So what is the sword then? Obviously, he didn't die by the sword. Christ was not killed by the sword. He was killed where? On the cross. But what is the sword then? The sword is the people. The lawless people, the people of violence. Our sin is the violence, you could say. is the people who strike him. Right? That's the sword. Awake, O sword. It's time to get your act together. It's time for you to fulfill my purpose. Of course, the people didn't understand that. Sinners don't understand that. If you look at Zechariah 12, verse 10, it is said that the people pierced him. It's the people, the people who are lawless, violent, right? But here we see in verse 7 that the Lord is acting through their violence, he's carrying out his justice 
through their violence. He's turning evil for good. Imagine this. We could take great comfort in this God. The evils that we see in our world, the evils we see in our, in our lives, right? For his people, he always, always, not, I mean, he never skips a heartbeat, but always turns it for good, always turns it for the prophet, always. We should understand that, right? And that's what we see here. Peter reminds us of that later. This man, when he's speaking to the household of the Jews 500 years later, the people, the, you could say the descendants of the people that Zechariah was speaking to, Peter says to them, this man, referring to Jesus, was handed over to you. How? By God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. But then he says, and you... With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So yeah, they did it. It was You see violence here, but the Lord uses the violence to carry out his justice, to turn evil for the good of a sheep, giving up his own son. Think of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And then it says a little bit later, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's how great his love is for his people. That he'd be willing to, to, to bruise. That he would be pleased to bruise his only begotten son. And now, you say, well, who is this shepherd? Of course, people in Zacharias, they didn't really know specifically who it was, but we have the benefit of knowing because Jesus himself says who it is. If you go back now to, or forward to Matthew 26, right, the night, the very night before Jesus was crucified on the cross, Jesus quotes this very passage, and he says, it's me. All of you, he says, will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. He's referring to God saying that. God saying that he will strike the shepherd, who is Jesus, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is the good shepherd they need. This is really the good shepherd we need. This is the good shepherd the world needs. This is the one you need, I need, for our substitute. I need to be put to death. But God is so merciful, he says, I put you to death in my son. And that's what he wants us to see. We need this kind of savior. We need one who who, uh, is the atoning sacrifice. The one who atones our sin through a sacrifice on the cross. In other words, you need his death to save you. You need the death of the shepherd to save you. We need to depend on him alone, by faith alone. We need to depend on his complete, totally finished sacrifice for our salvation. That must have just rung so strange in the ears of the people. They must have realized why we are sinful. We can't We can't make ourselves acceptable to God. We need such a shepherd, a faithful shepherd, a perfect shepherd, a good shepherd. 
to do this for us. And yet God carried out his just judgment on his shepherd, the shepherd. Such love here. Jesus says, you know what he says? I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. It wasn't that Jesus was against God in doing this. No, no, this was a pact. This was a covenant. They were working together. Jesus says, and for the joy of your salvation, I did this for you. You know, if, if we don't have, if, sometimes we have difficult trusting the Lord, and then you realize we have no reason not to trust him. I mean, what a rock-solid foundation. God even giving up his son, saying, I'm going to put you to death in him so that you can live. And that brings us to the second point for our salvation. Wow. You know, his judgment on the shepherd is for your salvation. In his death, he's the one who opens up the fountain from his side for you to come to him, for you to drink from him, to have a life from him, forgiveness, renewal. And that brings us to 7b through 9, the salvation of his sheep. Strike the shepherd. And then you see the result. And the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now we have to see the little ones here. It doesn't literally refer to the lambs or to the little children of the sheep flock. But I think it really refers to the, the little flock. It's, it was a small flock. It was a remnant. Right? So including big and little people. Um, another place Jesus says it this way. Don't fear little flock. He's speaking to his disciples. For it is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he calls them the little flock. They're the remnant. Not all of Israel in Zechariah's day would be really a part of this flock. This is what Zechariah is saying. And it was an urgent reminder to them. You remember. You rest on the promises of God. And we see three things here in 7b through 9. And that's what we'll include. His protecting hand, his refining hand, and his comforting hand. You know, the one who strikes with the sword also comes with his hand to protect the sheep, to refine the sheep, painful sometimes, and to bring comfort. And that's what we see so beautifully how chapter 13 ends here. Look at his protecting hand. When I think of protecting hand, I always think of John 10, 28, 29, where Jesus says, and no one can snatch you out of my hand, not even Satan himself, because he conquered them in his death and resurrection. No one can snatch you out from my hands. But anyway, um, Zechariah, what he's saying to God's people in his day is that they as a flock will be scattered as a result of the slaying of the coming shepherd. The whole flock would be scattered. They were already scattered, but they had come back together, but they would be scattered again. At the same time, he will not entirely withdraw his hand from the scattered flock. I think where it says here, then I will turn my hand against the little ones, I think it's better translated, and I think it's probably in some other Bible versions, where it says, here I, then I will turn my hand upon the little ones. Against here would mean not against like punishment, but upon in sense of, I will put my hand on them. That's, that's really the sense here. I will put my hand upon the little ones, the little flock. 
the small remnant. You see, the turning of his hand upon the little ones was first realized where? With his first disciples. Were they a big flock? No, but they were representative of the new Israel, right? The new flock, small, but which would emerge victorious in the world, starting small. At Jesus' arrest, what happened? They scattered. They all forsook Jesus. They fled. But the Lord Jesus, what does he do? He turns his hand toward them. Not because they were so good in themselves. Look what happened. (laughs) They were scared. They didn't want to stand for Jesus. They were scared. They wanted to run. They fled. They rejected him. And, And yet, he turns his hand towards his disciples. Remember what Jesus said even before all this happened? Yeah. You know, if this is what's going to happen to you, you're going to scatter. You're going to disown me. But after I've been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. So Christ is already saying, I'm going to bring you back. They're his chosen. It shows that his bringing back his hands over this little flock, and he's going to continue to hold on to her. Even in the midst of her forsaking Jesus, running away from Jesus, being scared, he says, I'm going to hold on to you anyway. You see, it's protecting, protection of his chosen people. You know, at the time they deserted him, you know, were his disciples responding in faith? Were they believing in Jesus? Were they trusting in him? No, they weren't trusting in him. They were afraid. They were not resting in his promise. Uh, I will go before you. They had forgotten about it. They didn't believe it anymore. And you know, when we don't look to Christ and trust his promises, what happens? We too become afraid. We become anxious. Like the disciples, we then become weak. We can't stand on our own. We become vulnerable to spiritual attacks, to, at the attacks of Satan, to our spiritual enemies. But there's more here. It doesn't end here. Christ did not rise again from the dead. Sorry, Christ did rise again from the dead. And Christ, by his grace, raises up his flock to life. What does he do? He gathers his chosen ones, bringing salvation to her. Even in their fear and desertion, Christ never abandoned them once. He never left them once. Not for a moment. Even in their fear, even in their weakness, you see Christ caring for them. You see Christ holding on to them. Even as he stood alone alone in his suffering and death for their salvation. He's holding on. Here the Lord through Zechariah says, not all the flock would trust in the shepherd for salvation and life. Not all. Because look at verse 9. It shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that two-thirds, talked about two-thirds of the flock, will be cut off and die. Now, it's not literally two-thirds, but it's saying that many Many are not going to embrace the Messiah, right? The one that they struck. They're not going to come back to him in repentance and faith. Those ones will be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. In other words, one-third is going to remain, and they're going to live because it's the Lord's will 
that he brings his chosen people together. The land here, of course, refers to, at that time, the land of Israel. That's who Jesus was primarily ministering, right? Among the Jews when he came. Most did not believe in Christ. If you look at the book of Acts, you see his fulfillment. In the book of Acts, how many people, how many Jews resisted the message of Jesus and the good news of Christ and him crucified? You read the book of Acts, you read the many in the synagogues, they slandered Christ, they slandered the apostles, they maligned them, they persecuted them, they threw stones at them, they chased them out of town, they had them arrested, they had them put in prison. They resisted Christ. That was the problem. They rejected Christ. They rejected the good shepherd. And what was the result? After repeated warnings, God finally cut them off from the covenant. Yeah, these were his original flock. He cut them off from the covenant because they had no appetite, no thirst for the Christ. He cut them off from the covenant, and it says they died. He was, they were cut off from his blessing, cut off from his forgiveness, cut off from salvation and new life. Yeah, but you see for his flock, his little flock, you see his protecting hand. He's holding on to them. And the reason why he's holding on to them is because, because of God's grace. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the fact that he chose us. He chose a sheep. They come to faith, and he holds them from beginning to end. <laughs> you see that. Second of all is the refining hand. You know what? When we come to believe in Christ, it's not, life is not a bed of roses. The prosperity preachers who say, God intends for you to be wealthy and healthy, don't let them take away your assurance when hard things happen to you. Those are false things they say. As a matter of fact, you see the opposite here. You see his refining hand. For believers in Christ, his chosen flock, Christ turns his hand upon his own. But it's a loving hand. But he's chiseling away. He's reforming. He's, he's changing. How? By refining and testing. Look at verse 9. I will bring them through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. I'm going to bring you through lots of hardships in this life. You're going to have hardships, but the promise is I'm going to bring you through it. There'll be fire. Fire? I'm going to bring you through the fire? Yeah, fire is painful. But, he's, but the promise here is I will bring you through it he will bring his sheep through it. As silver is refined by the fire, and as gold is tested, I will do so with you. You know, think about fire, right? Fire. You like to step in the fire? Nobody likes to step in the fire. It burns. There's going to be hard things that happen to God's people. But know that it's not punishment. We should never let this hinder our assurance of salvation when hard things happen to us. Because God has a good purpose, always in these hard things, in these hardships for his people. And that's what Zechariah is saying to his people in those days. Fire is used to purify silver. For what purpose? To remove the garbage, right? The, 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 the dirt, the dross, they call it. The, the substandard stuff. So that 
It can be real silver. Boy, that becomes precious. That becomes a jewel in the sight of God. In Zechariah's day, it was tough going for God's people. They were taunted. They were persecuted. They're trying to build a wall of Jerusalem. A lot of hardship and suffering. Trying, testing, uh, painful experiences. But you look at Jesus' words, he says, you should expect that. It's, that's a part of my blessing. That's a part of my working salvation in you. He saves us, but he's continuing to save us. But if we want that salvation, then yeah, we should expect to walk through the fire. That's what Zachariah is saying here. The death of Christ does not bring immediate heaven. It doesn't come right away. It's not a bed of roses. Fire, yes, but he promises to bring us through it. Fire purifies us. The refining of silver, testing of gold, pictures God's way of keeping his chosen. That's God's way of keeping us in the way of salvation. He uses suffering. He uses hardships, persecution, peculiar to each one of us. Different trials, different kinds of tests. What are we going to do with that? Do we see the good purpose in it? God's good purpose. Through hardship, God separates. What is he doing? He separates the genuine from the unreal in his church. He purifies us from our sinful nature so we become more and more a holy nation in his sight. You know, God sees believers as precious metals. But if we want to become more precious metals, then we need to be purified. The church is called a holy nation. But you notice that every nation has its own land. But do God's people have their own land? Well, not yet. Right? We're scattered. We don't have our land, our own home here on earth. We're a scattered people. We're scattered throughout the world. Um, the Christian church, remember, in Jerusalem, was scattered through the persecution in Jerusalem and the martyrdom of Stephen. What happened? They were scattered throughout. They had to leave the city. Or think of James and Peter. They opened their epistles by saying, by addressing Christians who were scattered. Believers suffers hardships for their faith, for their faith in Christ. Trials. Paul says, Paul says this, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That's a lot of believers. That's, that is the lot of believers. But for believers, God always has a good purpose in our suffering. Think about some of the purposes that God may have for, for refining us and purifying us. I just think of four, four quick purposes. One is to correct. Sometimes we go wayward and God refines us to correct us, to come back to him. He sometimes refines us because he continues to form our character, right? He wants us to become more brilliant as metals. Okay, sometimes God wants to manifest his glory in our weakness. That's another reason why he refines us. It looks weak sometimes, but God manifests his glory in it. And sometimes he does it because he wants us to equip others to comfort them in the kind of afflictions that you're going through, the hard things you're going through. There's so many different reasons 
why he does so. It's never without meaning. It's always for the purpose, for the good of those who love him, says the Bible. So yeah, protecting hand, he holds us. A refining hand, he purifies us through hardships. Never let that hinder your assurance of salvation. We need to trust in the finished work of Christ. And the third thing is the comforting hand. The purpose of refining is to, is that we may grow in our relationship with the Lord. You know, that unbroken relationship. There's nothing, says Romans 8, that can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what verse 9 is speaking about. I will be your God. And each one will say, I belong to you. How does that go again? It says in verse verse, uh, 9, I will say, this is my people, says God. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Everything else breaks in this world. But this is unbreakable. What a comfort. That relationship, nothing, not even the sword, not even persecution, not even sickness or death can separate that that link. And that's what we talk about, the comforting hand. The purpose of these trials, of these hardships, is to refine us, to grow in our faith, to strengthen our faith, to cultivate even a greater dependence upon the Lord in our relationship, to keep us looking up to him. They will call on his name. There it is. Through these, often God uses these hard things so that we call on his name. I will answer them, and I will say, This is my people. And each one will say, The Lord is my God. Yes. You know, don't we live in a scary world? You think about it? A lot of things that can scare us. But we should not focus on that. We should focus on who we are, what we have. In Christ, you know what? Sometimes it's really important to to hear the good news. What's going on in the world? Did you know that church is really growing in many countries of the world? I shared this little thing with you from a pastor in Ukraine. You can look at that. You can imagine his unimaginable joy through the refining fires. This is Ukraine, where all you hear on the news is negative, negative, negative. But here, this pastor. He says, it's very exhausting. He says, because of these tragedies, there has been a global change that will benefit us greatly in the long run. He says, churches are more active. Hey, there's one good thing. More active in Ukraine. Theology more substantive. They're becoming more concrete in their thinking about the Bible. We have learned to comfort. We became more compassionate, more focused on reaching souls and on setting for in-church comfort. And then he goes on to say, although many of us now have homes destroyed, imagine, homes destroyed, loved ones killed, many relatives at the front, spouses with children abroad, masses of pastors have left congregations and gone abroad, infrastructure only partially rebuilt, the economy is severely depressed, prices have quadrupled or more, job shortages and more. We are not going to give up We have a strong hope. The war has brought a lot of evil into our home, but God is turning it for the good of his church. And you see it there again. You see how 
God is applying that word of Zechariah even in our world today and in our own lives. There's great comfort to know that that relationship can never, ever be broken with the Lord. Trust in him, the one who gave his life for you. He's the exalted one. Isn't it comforting to know from the book of Revelation that a double-edged sword comes out of his mouth? It's comforting, isn't it? And his eyes flash with fire. Because you know what? That's one that's powerful to defend us. He's the one that scares away the enemies. He's the one who's gathering his church. He's the one who's protecting it. He's the one that's preserving it. He's the one that has chosen a people for eternal life. And he's the one who is uniting a people in true faith in an ever-growing sense more and more throughout the world. The church is growing. Maybe not here, but it is growing throughout the world. Our suffering, you know, think about our suffering is very padded. It's very light compared to what Christ went through. He endured it so that we don't... Uh, scripture talks about our suffering is light. Is light comparatively. And it's momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is there waiting for us. You know, sometimes we're afraid, but we don't need to be afraid, do we? To stand up for Jesus. He fought for you. He died for you. He holds you. He arose for you. He protects you with both arms. He keeps you. You belong to him. You belong to his people. There's no greater glory. There's no greater status. He's already won the battle. And you are secure. You are everlastingly safe in his arms. And being chosen by God, that's where the joy is, isn't it? Being chosen by him. In a short while, he will make this world our new home. Holy nation will fill this world. The Bible says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall we not with him freely give us all things? The wonder of it all, the wonder of his grace. Should that not encourage us to praise him? Amen. In response to saying 255, day by day, 255. Let's stand as we sing 255. Every day.